We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. Hello, my name is Leo, and I'm an alcoholic. I almost forgot the most important part there. I'm so in this interesting space right now, trying to get ready for this share. My clean date is 2-29-2012. I say clean date because I do have struggles with several addictions, uh, several substances. Uh, however, I do consider myself primarily an alcoholic because it's the first thing I put in my body and also the last thing I put in my body. So I sort of bookended a wild, wild, you know, I would say story up to the point where everything just started to fall apart. If, you, if you're hearing my, my voice just crackle a little bit, is I, I'm exceptionally, um, I'd say emotional at the moment because I just left my mom's house. She, she had a stroke last week. We thought she was going to do well after a major brain surgery that she had. Everything was fine. And then we got the bad news that she had gotten a stroke that was unexpected. So it's been hard for me in my days to go see my mom uh, really struggle, struggle to speak and struggle to move. And at the same time, I'm still really grateful that I've had an opportunity to be there for her, sober, attentive, loving, having put several years between the the crisis that we that I had basically sucked my whole family into to the moment now where she looks at me and I look at her and I see nothing but love I see nothing but trust and I I, I got to say it is it is all because of the work I did in Alcoholics Anonymous you know I when I share I usually share and I think I'm going to do the same thing today but it's it, I start off at at really the end, if that makes any sense. I start off the day of 228-2012. I remember clearly that morning I had actually ran out of um substances. I had ran out of substances and water, I'm excuse me, money, I can't even talk, money and the ability and access to get the things that I thought I needed to face the world. I got desperate. I got, I, I really freaked out. I didn't know what to do. And so I made some decisions like many of us do that we end up regretting later that made perfect sense in that moment. I made a decision to do everything I could to get money, which for me was to engage in a, a burglary, to commit a burglary at a former employer of mine. And the reason why I stopped, I start there is because that event almost led to, I would say, a psychotic break, a terrible anxiety breakdown that I, that I had never experienced before. Because when I did that act, I actually got away with it. And when I got away with it, I went back and tried again because I got away with it the first time. And the second time I wasn't so lucky. And I was so desperate that when I, when I finished what I did, I went straight to my dealer's home to get what I needed. And when I came back, I don't remember anything except for being pulled out of my bedroom at my parents' home where I was staying. You know, my parents' home where I was staying, it, it, it got me to that place. I mean, I was 36 years old, was back in this home, really devastating my family because they didn't know what was wrong with me. I didn't know what was wrong with me. And they just saw me self-destructing. And so when they came in, my parents were actually out of town that weekend. And when they, the police came in and they pulled me out of that house, I remember clearly thinking in my head, I don't want to be here anymore. I, I, I think it's time for me to go. And that statement, I think it's time for me to go, uh, is something that I replayed often during that time, those few days between the last time that I, from the, the point where I, I did what I did. And to where I actually met someone in the rooms of AA that helped me. I'll get to that in a second. So I think that moment, as vivid as it is, you know, what's even more vivid is what happened afterwards when I got arrested and released. 
they released me out on, I actually, I think I posted bail on my own. I somehow managed to save a little bit of money and I posted or uh, credit, excuse me. I had a little bit of credit and I posted bail to get out. And what happens was when I got home and this was like the ultimate walk of shame, I actually walked from the jail in Concord, California. I walked from the jail to my house, which is about a two mile walk. And I mean, it was a perfect image of where I was at in that point of my life. I mean, I was, I was in a t-shirt and jail pants without any shoes on, walking on the side of my old neighborhoods, my, the, the, where people know me, I'm exposed, I'm just showing people I just look like pieces walking on the side of the road. And I remember walking uh, up to my doorstep, my mom answered the door and she was like, I heard what you did. And I, and I instantly started to start, I began my lies. I said, no, mom, it's okay. It's all good. And she's like, no, don't lie to me. Don't lie to me. But even with that anger and that demand not to lie, lie to her, the codependency was still there. She invited me back in. She sat me down. She was making food for me. So I still had this semblance of sort of order and control in my, in my current situation, even though I was, everything was going crazy. I remember sitting down and trying to talk her out of this idea that I had a problem. <laughs> right as I'm having this conversation with her and my dad, I heard a big bang on the door. Boom, boom, boom. Police, warrant. And they just come filing into my house, rushing in. I'll never forget it. They slammed the door open. It swung. They, they, there were cops everywhere. And my mom and my dad, who are some of the most innocent people that you can probably meet, they didn't deserve any of that, but it happened. And what ended up going on soon after that is that they came in and they grabbed me from the back of the house and dragged me out. And when they dragged me out, I remember them cuffing me and they were serving a search warrant because it was a burglary spree in the area and they thought I was involved, which I wasn't. But they, they cuffed me and they were dragging me out. As that was happening, I looked to my right and I saw my mom and my dad and they were both on their knees with their hand, hands handcuffed behind them. And it was the first time in my life that I had seen for myself exactly what I had been doing to my mother and my father and really several people in my life. You know, I was holding them basically handcuffed. I'll never forget my father under his breath saying, please don't hurt my son. Complete selflessness, right? Just please don't hurt my son. I'm begging the police officers not to as they, you know, basically threw me on the end of or the side of the sidewalk. Let the whole community see me in, in chains, basically. And in that moment, I, interestingly enough, I found a sense of relief. I was like, okay, well, the gig is up, right? Everybody knows cats out of the bag. First thing that happened in my mind was, I, I think it's time for me to go. I think it's time for me to go. Now, I, I didn't have really good people in my life. You know, I had basically drug dealers and people I could drink with, maybe a couple bartenders here and there that knew me. So I didn't know who to call or what to do. I had tried the rooms of AA. I tried the rooms of NA. It really wasn't my thing. I was like, I, I, don't, I don't believe any of this stuff. When I thought, hey, it's time for me to go. I actually contacted one of my dealers. First of all, after they took me to jail and brought me out, I kind of missed that part, but I won't get too deep into it because it's, you know, it's, it's what happens. We get locked up, we get released, and then we go to, to trial. But in that time when I was out of the, the jail, I called a, a dealer and I said, hey, I said, you know what? I'm just wondering, are you able to get a gun? And he said, and I'll never forget it. He's, yeah, man, what do you need? And I told him, I don't know, whatever, something, something I can get right now. He's like, where are you? I'll bring it to you. He told me the price that I had to pay. I was trying to figure out how I was going to get the money to do it. Um, I was, what I was going to sell, what I was going to do. But I'll never forget how easy it was. And the, the complete emotionless response, um, not even checking in, not even caring. It's sort of the people that I had in my life. Well, before I told him where I was at, and I was actually in front of the old spaghetti factory in Concord, California, I remembered just for a moment that there was this, this guy that I met. His name was Keith. And I had met him in one of those meetings I didn't believe in. And he had given me his number. And, you know, I had it in my phone. And he gave me his number. He said, if you ever need anything, call me. And so um, 
after I hung up with this, uh, you know, potential source of the gun, I called him, I called Keith and I said, Hey man, I said, it's, I think it's, I think, I think, I think it's time for me to go. I I, I can't, I can't, you know, that's pretty much how I sounded. I I don't know if I, if I want to be here anymore, I I, got to go. And he goes, Whoa, 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 Whoa. What's going on, man? What's going on? It's good to hear you. I said, no, no, no. I I think I'm, I'm going to go. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, I think you know what I'm talking about. He said, okay, wait, don't do anything stupid. Where are you at? And I told him my address instead of the other guy, my address or where I was at. And 15 minutes later, 15 minutes later, Keith was at my window knocking. That was the morning of 2-29-2012. That was before I had put any substances in my body because it was the 228 when I put the last in my body. And I haven't picked up a drink since or a drug. That was 229-2012, leap year, a day that doesn't exist. This is kind of the way I do it. I look for the hardest days to make things happen. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think I'm uh, almost almost five. In, or, or actually, no, what am I saying? I'm almost three. I've 10 years sober. So I, I have to wait to have my real birthday. But anyways, I, I celebrated on the, uh, the first of the month because I don't want to do the 28th because that would be cheating. And so, I mean, that is a, just a quick snapshot of what happened that got me into the rooms. And I'm going to get into what my recovery process has been now that I've shaken my nerves out here. But this is sort of the, this is the makeup of, of my story. It's, it crescendos into disaster, you know, and every single time that I would use substances and get loaded and hang out with people that get me loaded and get drunk, do whatever, it would always crescendo to like the worst possible outcome. Without getting into all the mess, I can tell you right now, Portland PD in Portland, Oregon, when I lived there for a short amount of time and tried this out with a geographical, I ended up being taken out by the police. And when I mean taken out, they, they shot me in my leg because I was so out of control. I mean, it wasn't bullets. It was the uh, less than lethal rounds, but it took me out. And I was thrown in a jail cell and mom and dad come and get me again. Another time I, I went out angry at the world and was trying to do my thing with alcohol and drugs again, trying to erase the memories of everything that had happened, the heartbreaks I, breaks I had experienced, the, the, the things that had happened because of my drinking and my drugging. So I went out and I got intoxicated to the point where I could barely see. And I met somebody at this party who invited me back to their house, a young woman. And she said, here, take this. And she gave me something. And about two hours later, I woke up and there was a man on top of me, um, sexually assaulting me. And I couldn't move. And so, so these, these, these traumatic events, um, you know, being dragged very close to the floor because I'm handcuffed, get, you know, hitting my face on the concrete, getting slammed into car engines by police officers. It just, it, it's, it's, it, it, there are memories that wouldn't stop replaying in my mind. And that's really the reason why I was picking up alcohol because something would happen when I picked up alcohol, it would shut those images off. It would turn them off and give me just that moment of relief. I, I think back of when it all started, the, the drinking, it was really around six years old. The same family that I, I'm talking about here that was loving and caring, there was also a lot of problems in how they socialized in that there was a lot of drinking, not drugs, but drinking. And I remember growing up as a kid that my parents would throw these really extra, like big parties, Latino parties, I'm Salvadoran American. And they would have these big parties and they were just full of alcohol, but they were for my birthday, (laughs) right? So here's the six-year-old kid and I'm excited I'm having a birthday and there's all kinds of adults everywhere, very little amount of kids. Everybody's hammered and they're like, let's sing happy birthday. Let's get the cake out. And next thing I know, the cake is sitting there and everybody's partying around the cake, but they're they're not lighting the candles. Nobody's getting ready to do anything for me. And everybody ends up passing out on the ground. And I wake up the next day and my, my cake is still sitting there, right? That's the kind of environment it was. And, you know, I wasn't mad. It was weird. I wasn't mad. I was just curious because honestly, in that space was the fantasy that really left me stuck later on with these tragedies that I just explained, I just described to you. You know, it was this idea of connection, this idea of being with people that loved me. Man, it was cool watching people dance. 
watching people celebrate, cheering, hearing the glasses clink, listening to that Latin music as people are pouring more and more shots. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. It was just this, this imprint in my mind that I wanted that because that's my family. I love them. And those are their friends. And that's how we have a good time. So, you know, I remember clearly walking past that cake, past over all the people that were passed out on the floor around me. Good people. Nobody ever did anything bad to me. They were good people. They just liked the party. I walked right up to that fridge and grabbed the beer for the first time and I drank it. I can tell you exactly how it tasted. I can tell you exactly what it, what it did, which was really nothing when I sipped it. I kind of spitted it out. But I was like, wow, I, I, it, it doesn't taste very good, but I like what it does. For me, feeling like I was connected, I was part, I was, I was accessing that source of that happiness. And maybe the bitterness was just sort of the part of the process, right, of me really sort of a rite of passage, I would say. So my life with substances and alcohol really didn't kick off until I was in my high school years. I was actually uh, really, I mean, even though I had that sip of beer at six, I didn't really mess with it until years later. And it was in high school where really there was the big uh, introduction. You know, I'm from the 90s. There was, it was a big rave culture. Everything that we did in that time was really secretive and it was sort of underground. I mean, it was the underground party scene. And I remember being there and finding what I really missed in those parties that we had when I was a kid and being able to sort of form this, this own like group of people that were doing everything they could to sort of forget about the struggles of life. I found this group of people that really allowed me to explore that. And, you know, when you're surrounded by that suffering, because I, I really believe many of them are suffering, some even to this day. It's easy to sort of try to find the silver lining in my, you know, my hangovers or my, my head not feeling straight the next day. But it wasn't until then. And, you know, that it really, it really took root. I remember the encouragement of my peers and, again, feeling like I was part of. When I was 18 years old, actually 17 years old, I was an overweight kid. been overweight for years. And at 17 years old, uh, a Marine Corps recruiter came to me. And said, hey, you ever thought about the Marines? And I was like, I, no, I, I don't know much about the Marines at all. You know, and they said, well, come in and check out the recruiting office. And I went in there. And the first thing that happened was, is they told, they laughed at me because I was overweight. They said, oh, you're not going to make it. You're, you know, you, you weigh too much. And then I took a test for them. And I scored very high on the test. And all of a sudden they were my best friends. They were trying to get me to go into certain programs they couldn't find people for. And so I didn't know anything about the Marines, but I knew they were interested in me. And I asked them, what can you do for me? And what they said was, we can guarantee you physical fitness. Never forget it. So, so I actually joined the Marine Corps for one reason and one reason only, to lose weight. That was it. Because I felt separation from from people, from females, from, from anything, just super self-conscious because of my body. So coupled with my need to fit in, the drugs and the alcohol that were in my life at that point, an extremely poor self-image, I took a risk and I said, yeah, I'll do it. And I remember working out and losing all this weight, then throwing me in saunas and with plastic bags on me, you know, doing the extreme things that we do as, as addicts, right? Go all the way, go all the way. I remember seeing my old friends telling me, you're never going to make it, man. I did sort of believe them, but I had already committed. And when I went, I remember going there and feeling part of something that I had never felt before. And I actually did really well in the Marine Corps. I also lost 72 pounds. And when that happened, there was this sort of a rediscovery of who I was. As a 17-year-old kid... When you, when you recognize that you're someone that you've never been before, something for me, at least for me, I can only speak for myself. What, what set into me was a very, very toxic pride, I would call it, and a lot of arrogance. And, you know, I told you I could do it. And when I got out of basic training, I remember going into the local e-club, the enlisted members club. There was a Marine sitting at the bar. And I, I again, granted, I'm 17. I'm still, I can't even, I, I can't even buy a pack of cigarettes legally. 
but I walk into the enlisted club at the Marine Corps and this older Marine sees me graduate and he literally slides a beer over to me and he says, welcome to the Marine Corps. And it solidified that need, right? It was like, oh yeah, this feels good. I like this. I look up and there's this huge banner sitting on top of the bar that says Budweiser salutes to Marines. Everything was about beer drinking and fighting and getting down and, and, and doing anything you could to live this sort of, I would say like fraternity lifestyle that was, you know, committed to, to the, to the country, right. Committed to your unit. I felt very much like I belonged. I found something I wanted to be a part of, but because I didn't know how to live without alcohol at that point, I really, I, I, it just took root. You know, my alcoholism was still active, was, was active, was active and, and active ex- to the extreme and, you know, I drank that opportunity away. I got into some trouble fighting and um, I got injured and I was not able to continue service, received an honorable discharge for after my years of service. But I was I had a lot of plans that I was supposed to do. And many of those plans were were tossed because of my alcoholism. You know, one of the things that they told me in the Marine Corps was that I had qualified with my eyes and my education and my and my test scores to be guaranteed aviation. I almost, I almost went, but because I didn't, I did something that I do all the time with my life, which is I always do the next best thing. So after I couldn't do aviation guaranteed, I said, Hey, you know what? I'm going to be a, uh, uh, aircraft mechanic instead. So I went, got my certification. And with that aircraft mechanic certificate, I was able to travel all over the United States and have several jobs after I got out of the Marines, several jobs fixing airplanes. And every single place that I landed, I would just engage in my alcoholism to the extreme, collecting multiple DUIs in different parts of the country, having to stand in front of judges. As you can tell, my, my, uh, my, my track record isn't very, very good. So when I sat in front of that judge that day, when they read me the burglary charges, even though I wasn't connected to that warrant that they served early on. When they read me those burglary charges, I had to answer for all the charges on my rap sheet. The judge, I mean, the way that that she said it, she says, it's clear to me, sir, that you're an alcoholic. And you're not only an alcoholic, but you're an alcoholic who doesn't really give a shit. We're lucky that you haven't killed anybody. We're lucky that you haven't ran into anybody. And I'm trying to find any damn reason to not throw the book at you, basically, and send you to prison. I was ready to go. You know, I think I had collected something around the lines of 60 UIs, plus a burglary, um, you know, multiple run-ins. It just wasn't a good look. And I remember my sponsor was there, Keith, who became my sponsor in the courtroom. My attorney was there. My dad was there. They were all in the courtroom, and and when I stood up to to basically hear what they were going to give me, they all stood up with me, and you know they they told me that I had to do a treatment program and to do one year of house arrest. I thought I was lucky. Um, I could have I almost guaranteed I was going to prison for a couple years, but by some stroke of luck and by the grace of God, they they gave me this alternative. Yeah, I had to put the ankle bracelet on, but I got to stay at home. And still, at that moment, when I entered treatment sometime about a month or two, or about three months actually after I started getting clean, all I knew was how to not drink today. It's really the only thing I could do. I struggled with the concepts of the AA program. I struggled with with trying to do the step work. My sponsor, Keith, he just kept at it. He kept really committed to me. And really, it's the, it's, it's the message of service right, that we all carry, is that he was completely selfless in that, in a selfish way for himself, of course, for his recovery, but always putting my needs in, in front of our conversation and really talking me through it from a perspective that I had never heard before. And so it was enough. It was enough to really attract me to, to this idea of clean, but I didn't know, I didn't have any evidence that it would work. You know, so I was extremely doubtful. And when I went into treatment, I 
had, this is like my fourth treatment that I had been to. I was jaded. I didn't really, I wasn't really looking forward to it. So somebody suggested that I write, actually, this one of my counselors, his name was Mike. He said, you are one of the angriest people I've ever met. I'll never forget it. You are one of the angriest people I've ever met. And it pissed me off, ironically, right? I was like, what? What do you mean I'm angry? I'm not angry. And he's like, no, I, I can see it. I can see it. I can feel it. I can hear it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what's this guy talking about? He said, here, why don't you do some work instead of sit here and wallow in your self-pity? Like, here's some paper. Why don't you go write? Why don't you write answers to these questions, to this work that you have here in treatments, put the stuff behind you? And I was like, if I start writing, I won't stop writing and you're going to get bored with me. And he said, you write to any length, Leo. You go, you got to go to any length for this. And I didn't know what that meant at that time. But I took his words and I started writing and writing and writing and writing and writing. You know, what happens when I engaged in that activity of journal writing is that I started to see the, the, the patterns of my life. I started to see the things that were happening and I started just for a moment to get a little bit of understanding that I had a problem. As, as crazy as it sounds, I couldn't see it still. And so when I finally started to take a look at, at what was happening to me and the fact that I couldn't stay clean, I went to my sponsor and I said, I think I want to do the step work. And he said, Leo, do you want to be clean? And I said, yeah, I want to be clean. I want to be sober. And he said, do you want to stay sober? <laughs> and, I, and I was like, what? Stay sober? Um, no, I, I didn't even think about that. Like, what does that mean? Like, what it, it, like it was this fear that came over me, like stay sober. And he says, yeah, because if you're going to do this work with me, that's what our goal is going to be to stay sober. You've already done that. You've already put down the drinks. We're not, we're not even talking about alcohol anymore. We're talking about what gets you drunk, which is in the mind and in the heart. All right. And so I took him on his, on his, uh, uh, I wouldn't call it challenge or what he said, I'm ready to do. I said, okay, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to stay sober. And I got to work. And I got to tell you, as soon as I picked up the book and really started reading it without skimming over it, writing in the margins and doing everything I could in the big book to really understand it. When I saw a word I didn't understand, I, I defined it. When I didn't understand a concept, I rewrote it. Whenever I saw a prayer, I wrote it in my, in my words so that I could remember it. I did everything I could to really understand what was written for all of us, but I didn't know it yet. And slowly, slowly, step by step, I started to get more uh, awareness, more freedom, more spiritual awakening, more, you know, more of what was promised to me. I'll never forget when I had to read, you know, I had to get into the, the fifth step work and and I had to share everything with my sponsor. I, I didn't want to admit that I was a grown man that at 25 years old, a former Marine, was raped. Um, you know, it was scary to me. It was, it was disgusting. It was, you know, how, why didn't I fight back? Does this mean I'm gay? Does it mean that I will always carry this with me? Every time I close my eyes, will I see that picture of, of this, this man's face? Well, why didn't I run? Why didn't I fight? Why didn't I do this? You know, this is where I lived, you know, almost daily. And it was like, just drink. You'll forget it. Just drink. You'll forget it. But I couldn't now because I made the commitment to stay stopped and I'm doing my step work. I remember re coming to him and, and it was the first person that I ever shared this with. And, and I told him all the stuff that I wanted to tell him. And then he said to me, now tell me what's not on the list. <laughs> and I, I said, oh man, come on. Like, he's like, why don't you tell me what's on the list, what's not on there? What are you keeping from me? And he hit it right on the head. And I, I still do this with my sponsees. And it, it's one of the most effective things I think I've found to, to get people to really talk is, what didn't you want to put? What didn't you put down? Like, let's, let's be real. And I told him. But before I told him, I said to him, I think that I, I, th I said, God hates me. I'm probably going to hell for the things I've done. I'm afraid. I don't want to talk about this. And he said, what are you afraid of, Leo? What are you afraid of? He says, who's your higher power? I said, well, my higher power is, a, I, I believe in Jesus Christ. I'm not a super practicing Christian, but I believe in Jesus Christ as, as an individual and as, you know, the, the, what he stands for in, in my beliefs. And 
I, I told him, I said, I, he said, what, tell me about him. And I said, well, it's someone's tr- trustworthy, kind, loving, accepting. And he said, okay, I want you to imagine this in your mind, because I know you're afraid to tell me what you think I, you can't tell me. He said, just imagine this, your higher power just sitting in like a garden. <laughs> he said, just like smelling flowers. And then I come up to him and I say, hey, higher power, this is what happened to me, or this is what I did. And then he said, now, can you imagine your higher power turning to you and saying, get the hell out of here, Leo. Just, just leave me. Don't, I don't even want you near me. Like, well, you're, you're, you're cast out. And I said, no, hell no, of course not. That's not my higher power. He said, so then what are you afraid of, man? And just that small instruction was enough for me to finally say it. And interestingly enough, as soon as I told him, he said, oh, man, he goes, I've heard a lot of things. And I got to tell you, this is somewhere like four on the scale of like one to a hundred. <laughs> and I was, I was like, what? And he started laughing and he gave me a hug. He said, brother, man, he's like, you've been holding this your whole life. He's like, man, I've had things happen to me too, man. He goes, I've had things happen to me that, that, that I want to tell you about. And let's talk about it, man. And I, and for, for a moment in, in my, in my uh, early recovery, I felt a, a, a deep connection to another man, um, somebody who didn't want anything for me, who I didn't need to be drunk to communicate with, who really was interested in what I had gone through and who wanted to be empathic in that moment. So I got to tell you, it, it opened up a cascade of um, emotions and also of the desire to work harder. And we got to work rolled up my sleeves, started writing more, you know, got into my prayers and my meditations, you know, asking for my uh, character defects, you know, to be taken from me, my shortcomings. I got into all that and I meant it. I was sincere. I meant it fully. And then came the amends. Now, I've only told you a couple of the things that, I, that have happened to me or that I've done. I mean, I, I can't even start to tell you the, 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 the rest of them, but I'm sure you all know. If you're listening to this, you're probably very familiar with a, with a, um, a trail of, dis, of destruction <laughs> that we leave in our wake. Right? And there was one thing that my sponsor told me that I needed to do. And he said, you know, that place that, that you burglarized, how much did you take? And I said, oh, it was, on a, it was in a petty cash container. It was a petty cash drawer that they had. I saw it through the window. And I remember I broke this window to get it. And when I got it, I just grabbed the cash, left the place in shambles, shattered, and uh, ran. And I got in the car and I counted the money and it was only $164. And I went straight to my drug dealer's house and did what I had to do. And he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa what did you just say? I said it was $164. And he goes, you do realize that that's how many pages there are in the big book, right? <laughs> and I said, I said, oh, my God, you're absolutely right. He goes, yeah. He's like, hey, man. He's like, okay, this is what we're going to do. He's like, we're going to pay that money back. Now, I had already gone through the legal proceedings. This is about a year now into my recovery. He encouraged me to go to this location and pay them back in person. And what I had come to find out after I committed the crime was is that this place that I broke into uh, was a mental health facility. It was a it was a it was just like a drop-in center for people that have severe mental illnesses or other diagnoses. When I heard that, I felt really bad. Then when I got there, I just showed up. I was in a suit. I'll never forget it. And I said, hey, I'm here to I'm here to pay back money that I stole. I'm, I burglarized this business about two years ago, and I want to pay the money back. And the lady in the front counter looked at me like, what the, you know, her eyes got super big. And I said, listen, I can leave if it's uncomfortable, but I'm here. I said, I'm a person in recovery, and I'm trying to make my amends. And I, I, hurt, I hurt your business, and I want to pay you back. And she goes, just one second, sir. And she gets on her microphone, and she's like, uh, there's a man here that, you know. <laughs> And so then all of a sudden, this lady comes out, and she goes, Mr. Martinez? I said, yeah. He goes, uh, come back here. I said, okay, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I'm scared, scared, shaking in my boots, right? 
And uh, she sits me down and she goes, you want to tell me what happened? I said, I, I said, I, I did something that was self-centered and selfish and, you know, I harmed you. I, 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 I took money because I, I had a, I unjustifiably had a need to get drugs, you know, other than my addiction. Right. And I, I broke into your building to get that money. I didn't think of you and it wasn't considerate and for that. I'm deeply sorry. And I'm deeply sorry for the people here. And sorry is not enough for me. I have to pay you back. And here's your money. And I put the money on their desk. This woman stood up and she comes around the table and she goes, young man, I want to thank you. And I said, for what? She said, because you're letting me do what somebody did for me 18 years ago. Somebody forgave me for stealing from them. And I've been in recovery ever since. And I, I, I was just floored. I was like, are you kidding? And it, what, what turned out to be fear and this perceived uh, like this, that they painted me in some way, it turned into a, an embrace of, of understanding and of forgiveness. It was a gift that I, to this day, cherish. And as I walked out, I went into this mental health facility. The, the, the people that were there were struggling with their speech and some of their thoughts were, were, were off. You know, there was, you know, as people with bipolar um, disorder and, and manic states have, or, or people that are hallucinating uh, with, you know, some uh, thought disorders, things like that. It, it's, it's something that now, and I'll get into that in a second, I, I understand very well. But I went up and I, she said, I want you to do something. I want you to tell them that, you, that what you just did. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, that's how you can continue to make amends. Go let them know. And she says, you'll understand when you go. So it turns out that the money that I stole was money for them to go to Disneyland. And she told me, and I said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And she goes, no, no, don't worry. They got to go. A lot of kind people uh, you know, helped us and, and donated after the event. She says, but, but you need to go talk to them. So I went there and I said, ladies and gentlemen, this is me. I, I stole from you. And everybody just kind of looked at me. And I said, thank you. And people came up to the podium. And one young woman, I'll never forget, she said, I thought you hated us. I thought that that's why you did what you did, because you didn't like us. And I said, no, 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 not at all. I, I was sick. She goes, you just, you just weren't well. I, 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 and I'm just so happy that you're well now. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, this, this is getting more and more beautiful and more intense. Right? It, was, it was really better than any high I'd ever felt. Right? I was just so exhilarated with the amount of peace and freedom that that experience had. You know, I don't have too much longer um, to talk, but, you know, not all my amends went well. Uh, I had a, a dear cousin tell me that she never wanted to see me again. And uh, it hurt me more than all of the, I mean, it hurt me more than anything I can imagine because it was the one that I thought would forgive me because I had a lot of love for her. You know, I was able to process that with my sponsor and, and talk to him about it and, and just accept that not everyone was going to just be, hey, you know, let, let's have a hug. It didn't mean I had to go get drunk or high. A lot of thoughts came up about it. What's the point? Why am I going to do this? Who cares? Look, nothing ever gets better. All that stuff. Not looking at the big picture. And the steps kept going. The steps kept going all the way through. Made my amends. Did my 10, 11, 12, picked up sponsees. One of the wonderful things about this program has been watching, and this is a promise that's in the book, right? It's watching the society grow around you, right? And you become part of this society and part of this community and just people, you know, there's this, this uh, family tree that keeps growing, you know, uh, that we, me and my sponsees, we say we got a good pedigree. You know, we started off with, you know, me, Keith and his sponsor, and we have now branched out to several brothers of mine that we have good recovery. We're strong. They were all in my wedding. So I want to get into how it is today. You know, <laughs> it's amazing. I, 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 can't, I cannot use another word than, than that. Amazing. In 229-2012, I was sitting in a room, or 228, I was sitting in a room by myself staring out a window, wondering why nobody was calling me, scared, hurting. I went back to school 
I went back to school after all this has happened and I got sober and, and I went back to school and I really was confused as to what was happening. And, and I said, I, I really want to learn about these addictions. I went back to school and got my uh, certificate, my KDAC certificate to work with people in recovery. I didn't mention my, my other school experience, which was supposed to be in the legal profession, but you know, God had other plans for me. I went back to school and I met somebody. His name was Roland Williams. Roland is, is a mentor of mine, and many of you that are listening to this might know him. He's, he's really all over the United States, even the world. And I, when I met him, he said to me, Leo, I think that you have something that you should work on building. He says, there's something about the way you talk and the delivery you have and, and just your presence. And I really want to help you with that. I want to be your mentor. I, I, was, I was extremely humbled. And as soon as I had an opportunity to work for him, uh, I was in the school getting my KDAC certificate when he told me that there was an internship opportunity in Thailand. That's right, Thailand. And so during this time in recovery, I managed to save a little bit of cash and I didn't have a relationship. I was alone. I was working, but I wasn't making a lot of money. I was still living at home. I was sober. I had a, a bunch of friends. I hadn't been in any romantic relationships for a long time. I was trying to work on myself. He said, hey, do you want to go to Thailand? Or There's an internship in Thailand, and I immediately emailed him. Long story short, I, I was in Thailand probably about six months after that conversation, and I started my career as a counselor. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because only a couple years after I was alone in that room, I'm sitting on one of the most beautiful places on earth. I, I had gone on a weight loss journey during this time as well. I had lost about 100 pounds through running, which is where I find my spirituality, you know, my, my belief in my higher power, but my connection to the nature, to nature, to, to, the, to the air, being free. I was able to find myself in the jungles of Thailand running by myself in pe at peace. I'll never forget the, the animals that would come out of the, out of the jungle, like little monkeys and little wild dogs, and they would be running next to me. And I'm just running, man, and I'm feeling my heartbeat go with my steps, and it sounds like music, and I can smell the skewers of shrimp on the Thai coast. And I just look at the sky, and I'm like, thank you. Like, I, I can't believe this. I, I, I just start tearing up because just, just two years ago, I was by myself thinking everybody hated me. And now I'm starting this new journey, this new life. To fast forward, I met my wife there. I was 38 years old when I met her. My third son was born five weeks ago. Now, I, I had every belief in my mind that I was never going to meet anyone. I was going to be alone. I was unlovable. No one's going to want me, a rape survivor, a, a person with addiction. Then I met this beautiful woman from Amsterdam. And uh, we went on a romance. And, and you know, she, she moved here to the United States to be with me. And we have our third child now. Um, I have a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a five-week-old. And I'm blessed. I was also able to um, continue with my education, and now I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I'm a, I'm a therapist. I went, got my master's degree, uh, won several awards in the community for community service and for uh, uh, people that make a difference awards and things that I'm extremely humbled to have received. Uh, my career has taken me places I never could have imagined. Uh, just today, I was in a training with people from all over the world, learning how to be relapse prevention specialists. The, the organization, CNAPS, which is uh, um, by Terrence Gorski, is world-renowned uh, model for relapse prevention. Uh, Roland Williams, my same mentor, he extended an invitation for me to join his faculty, which is only six in the world. I can't tell you how grateful I am, you know, to be able to see my mom today, to be able to see her and know that I have nothing but trust and love and she has forgiven me and the people there in my life that knew that knew me that was one of the reasons why i was struggling what am i going to say today because i just don't remember that guy i don't remember what was happening i think about uh the movie shawshank redemption right red <laughs> when he's getting paroled the time they paroled him they were like he's like i just want to go back and talk to that guy i just want to go back there and talk to him it's gonna be okay you know i i, I get that sometimes in my mind. Because again, at the beginning, there's no evidence that recovery works. There needs to be people like me. There needs to be people like Keith. There needs to be people like Tara. There needs to be people like all the people we meet in these rooms here and all over the world where I've been. 
every single one of them living a life of recovery. That's my evidence. That's the people that show me that it works. I know if I take that drug, I'm going to get high. And I know if I drink that drink, I'm going to get drunk. It's not going to last, but I know I'll have some relief. But I know that if I stay with these people now, the evidence is I can stay forever. I have peace with them, spirituality and love. And there's freedom in that. You know, when I moved to California just recently, I, I didn't know anyone out here. I was a big part of the Contra Costa uh, Fellowship in Contra Costa County, California. And I moved out here to, and I, I went to a meeting because I had disconnected a little bit from, from going to meetings. And I was like, I really want to get to know people in my community and what better place to go than in meetings. And so I went and I sat and I watched people suffering. I, I watched people succeeding and I, it just brought me back to this is home, right? This is where I belong. And it gives me an opportunity to replay my life. And as I'm sitting there thinking about all the things that have happened to me and all the places I've been, it's like a Dr. Seuss book, right? All the places I've been. This young lady next to me says, would you like to share your story? <laughs> and I was like, first thing that popped up in my head was like, what the hell am I going to say? But I said, yes, because that's what we do. We serve. We help each other, you know, just like he showed up for me knocking on my door, on my window. I'm knocking on your windows and your doors in a safe way <laughs> and saying, you know, just get on board. Let's do this. Let's try it out because you will not be disappointed. I appreciate your time and I, I thank you for the opportunity to have a life that I that that's worth living. And I, I thank you for the opportunity for letting me be of service and sharing. I think that's my story. Leo, you did not leave me much time for questions. I'm very mad, but it was such a good story. I can be a little late. I, I can send a message and just say I'll be okay. a few minutes late. All right. Let's see. Let's see. I, my first question is, well, first, you made me cry three times, and I don't cry, Leo. So oh. I don't even know what that's about. You touched my heart. Oh, my God. You, you touched my heart three times. Fantastic storyteller. I totally agree agree with Roland. Does Thank your you. cousin talk to you today, 10 years later? No. Or, no. Oh, there's supposed to be a happy story there. No, it's she, she, I respected her, um, her wish to never talk to her again. Um, that was my amends. I had to honor what she wanted and the door, the door is always open to her, but you know, I mean, she, she, I know her life. She's got a, a child now and you know, she's living well. And that's, that's all I can ask for. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> well, sorry, that wasn't the right answer. You did not give me the right answer, but I love that the door is still <laughs> open and that's how we do this program. Do yeah. you still write? Do I still write? Actually? Oh, that's one thing I forgot to mention. So I actually, I just opened up my old journals and I was reading the, the, the journals uh, uh, with my first day of treatment. And I do a lot of, I, I do write stories. I write little, I write, I do some poetry. I do, I do things like that, like more artistic type of writing or, or brief like article-like writing. I don't do as much journaling as I used to, although I have been journaling. I really struggle with food too. So I've been doing a lot of journaling around my food. So I don't know if that answered your question. Well, well, yeah, it does. I did. I we got a little more information there too, because struggling around food is a common thing, and I don't hear it from men very often. So I'm really glad you shared that part. Yeah, I, I, um, my my relationship with food has actually been harder than than alcohol and drugs, in terms of in, in the sense that my my self image is incredibly important to me. This is a portion of the story I didn't share was uh, growing up as an overweight kid and a lot of a lot of bullying and made fun of and figuring out how to be like a jokester to like mm -hmm. diffuse that situation and so but i was hurting inside i was dying and so when i went to the marines and lost that weight i came back they actually they didn't let me look at a mirror the whole time i was in the marines so i was they, they literally painted red stripes on my chest and said you're a fat boy <laughs> that that was what those red, sti red stripes meant they called us the pork chop platoon shamed us and they mm. would make a stand at attention i'll never forget the moment i felt like i disassociated from the from the moment of just being humiliated and they wouldn't let me see myself in the mirror and they would lie to me in my ears tell me i gained weight and they'd fear they'd freak me out they'd scare me 
And, um, you know, they made me pay, they made me work out until I, you know, got sick in, in the barracks. And I remember the day before I graduated or not the day, uh, like three weeks before I graduated or two weeks before I graduated, we went to go get our uniforms fitted. And when I went there, I had a friend, his name was Russ. He said, Leo, man, he's like, go into the bathroom man. they have a mirror there. And I was like, what? Are you serious? It's like, yeah, because they don't have mirrors at the barracks in, in, in the Marines. They don't have any mirrors there. And so I ended up going in and stripping down completely <laughs> and closing my eyes and then opening my eyes. And it was like meeting another person. Hmm. As I, I had lost, I looked completely different. I'd lost 72 pounds and I hadn't seen myself until I was the 230 pound guy. And I was 160 something, right? Or whatever the, the difference is. I was like, oh my gosh. And so from that moment, there's been this chase to achieve that. And food for me has always been comforting and, and it's a big, big and Latino culture to, you know, everything's about food, but my food choices have been uh, really hard to control. And also I got to the point where I was, you know, eating sort of in secret, hitting multiple places, very addictive behavior, right? Going to multiple fast food joints, and, you know, consecutively to not be embarrassed. Like all the things that all the behaviors that we do to keep it going, because we know in my mind, I knew I was kill- I was hurting myself, and I've I've been able to really build a community of people that also struggle with food and sugar, and very much in the twelve step spirit, friends from all over the world that that share this uh, problem, and we look at it as sort of the next chapter, right? The next chapter because there are plenty of behaviors that I can work on after I get sober. Okay. Okay. That was so good. I, I know we're short on time because you, you're working. You have a day job, which is just fantastic. You're one of those special people that can dedicate their life to this recovery thing. Oh, thank you. Final question for those out there still suffering and maybe don't know what's wrong with them. Like you once did not know what was wrong with you. What message would you like to leave with them? Um, the message I would have wanted to hear back then is that I have a place to go always. I think my biggest fear was to be alone and to be insignificant to people. And, you know, my, the drugs and the alcohol, you know, just brought me into such isolation that I was living with nothing but fear. And I had no idea that I could go somewhere where I could really be myself and, 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 and not, not have to, not have to endure those thoughts and those, those, whatever was going on in my head. I was just afraid. And what I found is, is that I, I have been to several countries and I've been able to walk into any city that I've been in and find my tribe, you know, and I can't think of any, anybody in my drugging and drinking world that can say they have that, um, I just, I just don't. Every the world's become so small, and mine has become so big. And I, will, I, I hope that for all the people that are struggling, that their worlds become bigger, because there's more. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, or visit keepcomingback.net.